Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. you've been with us at all since Easter, you will know that we've been looking at various attributes, characteristics of who God is. Um, And really, our hope while we've been doing that is to discover who God has revealed himself to us to be and why that's really, really good news. Um, We've been wanting to look at what it is God wants us to know about himself and to explore the difference that that makes in our lives. Um, If you were wondering, in total, what have we looked at? This is what we've been looking at. We've looked at the fact that God is global. Actually, even in that first service, in that first sermon, we realized that considering God in terms of his global reach and rule and reign wasn't quite enough, so we changed that to galactic. We've been speaking about God being present, how he is with us, and how we can be with him. The fact that God is a knowing God, that he's trustworthy, helped us to look at the compassion of God, that he is in control, that he is an active God, that he is a wise God. Peter helped us explore the fact that he's a relational God, and Rodri helped us look at the fact that he's an eternal God. We looked at the fact that he is a just God a couple of weeks ago, and then last Sunday, Jamie opened up to us wonderfully, I thought, the fact that God is gracious that he is kind when it's not expected. And we know, or at least I hope we know, that a list like that or a series like this is never intended to be exhaustive, okay? There's things probably that you know about God that aren't on that list. Attributes, characteristics, parts of what God really means to you that we haven't even come close to touching on. You might have expected us perhaps to mention some of the things like this. The fact that God is loving. How can we go, what has it been like, 12, 13 weeks and not mention the fact that God is love? I hope actually we've mentioned that on several occasions as we've been looking at other parts of who God is. The fact that he's creative. Not just that he is the creator, but he is a God who puts things together in a beautiful way that he's patient, or as we've got it in a lot of our translations, that he's a long-suffering God, that he's good. Just that general fact, we say it so often, we take it so much for granted that God is good. How about this? The very, very fact that he is knowable at all, that he is merciful, that he is king, that he is independent, that he's a provider, that he's unchanging, that he's powerful, that he's worthy, that he's jealous, that he's holy and pure, that he's glorious, that actually he's beyond description. These are all things we could very well have and probably should have and might in the future take our time to explore about God. So there's no sense in which we think this series has said it all. It was never meant to say it all. I think we've seen a lot of these things 
not by design, but by chance in a sense, as we've gone through the other characteristics. Because one of the amazing things about God is that it's impossible really to speak about any one attribute in isolation, isn't it? That whenever we look to God, we look at how he's revealed himself in one sense, we have to, by necessity, bring in other aspects and discuss other characteristics. These attributes, which are handy to consider and list in an individual sense, they never at all exist in isolation. Even that grandest of statements, God is love, on its own does not come close to describing the God who we worship. So we haven't had, and I keep honing in on that one a week, God is loving. We've spoken explicitly and implicitly about that love, haven't we? Almost every week. There might not have been a smart PowerPoint slide declaring that truth, something saying God is powerful, but his power has been there at several twists and turns. So where do we land up then? What is the final attribute in this series, which is not going to by any means sum everything up, tie it all off with a nice pretty bow or anything, but where do we go? What is the one missing ingredient that in my limited wisdom decided that we should have in this series. Well, I want us to consider Psalm 145 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, please open it up to Psalm 145. It's moderately lengthy, and we're going to read it through together. All the way through our series, the Psalms have been a real um, deep well, a resource for us to draw on when we're thinking about who God is. The descriptions of God that we get in the Psalms really open our eyes in a way that perhaps other parts of scriptures don't. And Psalm 145, I think you'll see this, is one of the Psalms which draws together so many of these aspects and attributes of who God is. Perhaps more than any other, brings them together, these multiple elements of who God has revealed himself to be. Again, I'm not expecting us to look at Psalm 145 and have this exhaustive picture of who God is. But I hope as we make our way through it, and I'll put the words up on the screen as well with some um, emphasis that I've added, you'll start to see how the psalmist really wants us just to see the totality of who God is. This is what we read in Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds." They celebrate your abundant goodness and, joyful, and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. 
They tell of the glory of your kingdom and they speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Did you see, like, just how many things that we've covered and things that we haven't covered that are mentioned in that psalm about God? About who he is, what he's like, the way that he acts and lives and interacts with us? What I want us to grasp this morning, though, rather than one individual attribute, is this. Is that while God is a God who does reveal himself in certain things, God will always be a God of more. I mean, I genuinely think Psalm 145, out of all the Psalms, is one that gives just a depth and a breadth and a detail about God that are beyond the others, and yet it does not claim to be the whole picture. Actually, it's a self-limiting psalm. If you're looking in your um, Bibles, it might have had a footnote that in the Hebrew, it's an acrostic poem. That means every line starts with the next letter of the alphabet. So if it was in, in English, it would be A, B, C, D. So, so there's a limit to how much information, how much truth about God could be in there. The psalm is only intended to help us to start scratching the surface of who God truly is. That's why we expect and we do find in Scripture declarations like this. All the depth and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing. Just that idea that even when we come and we know certain things about God, <laughs> there's so much more to know. In the book of Job, how great is God beyond our understanding? He does great things beyond our understanding. God is more. God is more. No matter how much we formulate Him, no matter how many different attributes we put on a list, we will always find that God is more. I think actually one of the things that we find isn't just that he is, you know, very, very well described in scripture, but that in each of those attributes, he is more than we care to understand or we can understand. Where if we're going to consider his rule and his reign, then we know as we explored in the very first week, that it goes further than him being a global God who is the God of the north and the south and the east of the west, but he's the God of the entire universe. 
And even that doesn't truly give justice to him. If we were to set aside a week to consider his love, we'd have to conclude that his love goes deeper. Um, I think I've got this up on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Like a love that just does not end, never runs out. He's more in that attribute, if that makes sense. If we, were con- if we were to consider his existence, which we did with Rodri, it goes longer, doesn't it? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As in, like, he exists more than we can comprehend. If we were to drill down into his wisdom and his knowledge, we would have to conclude that it is higher than anything that we could achieve or attain. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Do you see how much more God is? That even when we try to describe it, we're basically just saying, and we've come so far, and then more. We've come so far and more. God is more. He is beyond our limits. No matter where we cast our gaze, we gaze on his infinite attribute, kindness, his infinite graciousness, his infinite patience, his infinite goodness and mercy. Bob Latham, one of my lecturers back in Bible college, put it like this, that when we begin to consider God, when we begin to describe God, when we begin to explore God, all we are really doing is paddling in the shallows of the edge of a vast ocean. To us, sometimes it can feel like an overwhelming torrent there in the shallows, but like, this is the truth. God is so, so much more. And I tell you what, we suffer as people when we put a limit on a God who has no limits. I was thinking to uh, Mark's gospel and occasions when people came to Jesus and they had in their minds certain limits. Here's, Here's the first one. It's right at the start of Mark's gospel, and it's when the man who's suffering with leprosy comes to him. And he says this, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Like, on the one hand, he's crystal clear about Jesus, isn't he? About, about Jesus' power. There's no hint of suspicion that Jesus is unable to heal him of his physical disability. And yet, he's worried that he might be on the edge of Jesus' willingness. Do you see that? He's limiting Jesus. And he's fingers crossed that he himself, the leprous man, is just within the limits of Jesus' willingness to make a difference in his life. There's another occasion in Mark's gospel. It's immediately after the transfiguration. If you remember, Jesus comes down the mountain and there's a big row going on. There's the disciples, uh, there's teachers of the law, there's a crowd, and in particular, there's one father and one son. And the father is looking for someone, Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, um, to set his son free from demonic interference. It's, it's a horrible story. It's, it's robbed this young lad of any sort of quality of life. And in desperation, this is what he says to Jesus. If 
you can do anything. Take pity on us and help us. If you like, he's standing on the opposite side of the divide to the man with leprosy. Here, he's, he's reasonably certain that Jesus is willing. He, he anticipates that Jesus is someone who will have pity, who is keen to help. But he's wondering, am I just on the limit of Jesus' ability to help? If you are willing, if you can do anything. What we find actually in both instances is that these people's limits are nowhere near God's. God is more. Jesus is more. He heals the man of leprosy. He casts out the demon from that boy. Jesus helps them both. I think another story in uh, Mark's gospel really helps us see how Jesus is uh, a God of more. And it's from the feeding of the 5,000. In Mark's gospel, we know the story. We know it very well. There are 5,000 men and many more women and children, aren't there? And um, they've gathered together in the middle of nowhere. They've come near to Jesus to hear him specifically teach them. And as the day is growing later, the disciples begin to worry that there's this great crowd of people and um, they haven't brought any food with them. And they certainly don't have the means to feed them themselves. So they, they say to Jesus, Jesus, can you now wrap it up like wind does sometimes with my sermons? He points at the watch and he says, tie it up. He doesn't actually. Um, um, he says, Wrap it up now and send them on their way to go and get some dinner. But Jesus suggests to the disciples that they, having spotted these people's needs, should look to meet those needs. The disciples should be as keen to be the ones to provide the food as, as they are keen to point out that the people need food. The disciples, of course, look at this massive crowd, 5,000 men plus women plus children, and they say, nah, that's impossible. That is never going to happen. They actually articulate how much they think it would cost them financially to go into the nearest town and to buy the amount of food that would be needed. They say it would take more than half a year's wages to feed that assembly. You can almost, as you go through the story, hear it in their voices. Are you really suggesting that we spend that much of our cash on this lot? They, right, think, think about this now, the disciples had reached the limit of their generosity. Does that make sense? They, they wanted to show kindness and compassion. They were glad the crowd had come to see Jesus. They didn't want people fainting and passing out and then have to deal with that. They thought that the kindest thing that they could do was to, say, to get Jesus to say, off you go, have some tea. When Jesus says, okay, you, you be involved in feeding them, they don't actually say, well, we don't have the money. They say, well, we don't want to spend that much money. They've reached the limit of their compassion, of their generosity. So Jesus gets everybody to sit down. And he picks up five pathetic loaves and two even more pathetic fish. And he gives thanks and he feeds them. And you know what happens because the story is called the feeding of the 5,000. But what do we expect to happen? If we're going to put limits on Jesus... If we're going to put limits on God. Well, with five loaves and two fish, what we'd expect to happen 
would be that some people would be fed, but the vast majority would go hungry. That would be maybe expectation number one. But you think, I, we, we know a lot about Jesus. He's, he's a very powerful man. He healed a guy with leprosy, cast out demons. Um, there was a little girl who died. She's come back to life. There were blind people, deaf people. You know, he can do it all. So now my expectations, my limit on Jesus has shifted a little bit further. And I think he can do something special. I think that he can multiply this bread and this fish such that everybody can have a bite to eat. Jesus has proven himself to be powerful. Of course he could make five loaves and two fish stretch far enough for everybody. But the end of the story, I think, is really quite remarkable. This is what Mark records. Of the crowd, they all ate, but notice this, and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. This wasn't kind of like how we take communion, where we take the very smallest morsel of bread as we can, the tiniest thimble full of juice as we can, and we can say, well, we've all had a piece. This is them all eating and being satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. There's leftovers. There's leftovers. Not only did everyone eat, not every, only did everybody have a full belly by the end of it, not only did Jesus feed the entire crowd, but he did it and then some. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Is that Jesus is a God of more. We put limits on him. Jesus smashes those boundaries. Stories like these from the gospel show us that not only is God's grace, for example, sufficient for us, but that all of these attributes of God that we've been exploring, that we could explore, that I hope that you will find when you dive into your Bible, they are inexhaustible. There's a, a hymn that we've sung in the past by a gentleman called Samuel Francis. I think I've got it coming up on the screen here next. And I think it's this sort of inexhaustibility that he had in mind when he wrote, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Like he's not putting a limit on Jesus there, is he? He's grasping something of a God who is more. So what? So what? One of the questions we've been trying to answer every single time we've come to see something true about God is to reflect on how that affects us, what difference that actually makes in our lives. So what if God is a whole lot more than our best description? Like, so what if God is the double list that came up, and some more things. So what if in our conception and understanding of any of those attributes, he's, he's a little bit more, that he goes beyond our limits? So what if he is inexhaustible at, at every turn? What difference does that make to you and to me? Well, I think when we have this picture of God in our minds, as being neat and tidy and boxed in and limited, 
that's harmful. And when we recognize that God is a God, not who is put in a box, but one who made boxes, He is outside, He is beyond our box, then I think that will really, really change our desires, our expectations in life, and our priorities. The Apostle Paul has this moreness of God in mind when he's praying for the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, he prays a really big prayer. We're probably not going to explore this morning how big a prayer that he is praying, but you will see at the end of it that he certainly thinks God is a God of more. This is what he prays for them. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him. Who? God? What was he like, Paul? He is one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I mean, get that for a second. This is, why, this is why Paul is praying such a big prayer. He's praying to one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. To him be the glory through the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all gener- generations. Amen. It's a big prayer, isn't it? Did you catch, like, the, the center of what he's praying? He's praying that they would know, in its totality, the love of God for us in Christ. While in the same breath, saying, this is something that is beyond our knowing. He's praying for the thing that he says is impossible. Not just a surface knowledge, but a knowledge of something that is beyond knowledge. Why does Paul think that it's okay to pray something like that? Why does Paul think that it's okay, if you like, to pray a paradoxical prayer? A a prayer which, like, rationally, logically, doesn't make any sense. It's because he's asking it from a God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. I genuinely think Paul had grasped this about God in a way that we simply struggle to do, that God is more, that God is limitless. And because he knows that God is more, he desires for something more in these Christians, doesn't he? He expects that they would experience something more, and his priorities for the church certainly are changed by it. When we see God as a God of more, we should become, like Paul, people and a church who want and expect, and desire more. Hang on. Hang on, though. I've been thinking about this for a while now, and at various times it's made me feel very uncomfortable. That if God is a God of more, and we see that, 
in how he's revealed himself. We see that in how Jesus lived his life. We see that here explicitly stated in the prayer of Paul, that we should be a people who expect more and want more and desire more. Can that be right when Paul, the same person, wrote probably more famously in his letter to the Philippians that we need to be contented people, that we need to be satisfied people, that no matter what our state or what our situation, contentment was a glorious goal to achieve. How can I stand here and say, you need to be people who want more? That is what I'm saying, by the way. You need to be people who expect more, desire more, and still hold true to what Paul says when he says, I've learned the secret to contentment in all situations, whether I've got a lot, whether I've got little. I know how to be content. How can those two fit together? They fit together because, tragically, we've turned upside down the way that the church is supposed to live. We've turned upside down the way that Christians are supposed to live. Think of it like this. When Paul is speaking about contentment, primarily, what's he speaking about? He's speaking about circumstances, material things, physical things, things even, dare I say it, like health and circumstantial happiness. Paul says, do you know what? In that area of your life, if you have Christ, you should be content or at least you should be striving for contentment. Those things which can change, those things that can waver, those things that will be here one moment and gone the next, whether you have them or not, learn to be content. Whereas, on the other side, when he's speaking to them about desiring for them to have more, to, to have an abundance and an overflow from God, he's speaking not about material things, but spiritual things, isn't he? Specifically, knowledge of the love of Christ. If you went to the book of 1 Thessalonians, a book in which Paul commends the church for three things, he wants to use them as an example to other churches of faith, hope, and love. You keep reading. He says, do you know what I really want for you, though, church? I want you to grow in faith and hope and love. And he labors that last point massively. So to a people that he sees, oh, you know, you live, you experience the love of God, and I want others to see it in you. He says, my desire is for you to have more. Now, think of those two kind of like extremes or those two um, sides of the coin. Circumstantial things and, and like our spiritual lives. And I know I, I, a lot of the time I, I try to blur that divide because I think the divide isn't as clear as we often make out. But here's what we've done. We've basically said, I think, I'm, put, I'm, I'm assuming that you're the same as me. I'm happy, Lord, I'm content with where I am spiritually. I'm satisfied with knowing Jesus as much as I know him now. It's great that I found the truth, that I'm saved, that I can confidently face my final breath in the knowledge that I will be with you forever. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where I am. And yet, I will lose sleep over everything in this sphere. I will fret, I will panic, and I will not be content here. Our problem is we've taken the concept of contentment and we've applied it to an area of our lives where we should never, ever be content. 
and an area where we should be content, we actually really want God to be a God of more. Come on, Lord. Bless me with more years. Not, we watched Dumbo last night. I don't, definitely don't want bigger years. That's fine. Uh, bless me with a longer life, better health, better job, more friends. All of these things, things that we're told to be content, we're discontent. Both things are true. We should be desiring more and we should be content. But what we really need to do is to see where it is that the Lord wants us to desire to grow. Um, two things I want us. So what? If God is a God of more, then Sammy, where are we supposed to be desperate for more? Where are we, along with Paul, supposed to be asking for and striving towards things from a God who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? Well, the first one I've kind of said already, but is to know Jesus more. I, I have to confess, I've wasted so many years of my Christian life being content with where I am with Jesus. Just satisfied with where I am. My bits and pieces, knowledge and experience of the one who is unsearchable. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've heard the good news that Jesus came and died and rose again and it was for you and you've responded to that and you, like me, satisfied. Nailed it. Put that to one side now. Nothing more to be done. I promise you that you are missing out. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you think to yourself, well, no, I mean, Sam, I can't relate to that. I do really want to grow as a Christian. I really do want to know God more, and I want to know Jesus better. And I want to live more in keeping with who God is and how he wants me to live. That is why I'm here at church on a Sunday. So I can listen to a sermon, and I can grow. Like, if that's the extent of it then I can promise you, you are missing out. If you think knowing Jesus more is just about coming once a week, barely paying attention and being spoon-fed from the front. Perhaps you've come along to church and you're not convinced about Jesus at all, but for some reason in this picture, you're quite like us as a church. You look to Jesus, and you're not convinced, and you look at us, and you think, yeah, okay, I'm happy with them. Can I promise you too, you are missing out. You have got the raw end of the deal. If you get the church, but you don't get Jesus, you have been shortchanged significantly. God is so much more. Jesus is so much more, and it should be our desire to know him more. We shouldn't be satisfied with scratching around with the bare minimal. Not satisfied simply being spoon-fed. Not satisfied just by being near people who know a bit for themselves. But desperate and active in seeking for ourselves a further, a deeper knowledge, a more intimate relationship, a fuller experience of Jesus. That's what I think God being a God of more means for us. That's the so what. 
We can literally spend our entire lives going deeper from those shallow places into the vast ocean of who he is. Think of it a little bit like eating food. Hands up who eats food. Bill's trying to lose weight. Okay, yeah. Most of us, apparently, eat food. Um, Do you know what's great on a Sunday? Getting together for Sunday lunch. That's nice, isn't it? Because normally people have got a bit more time, they've put a bit more effort in, and the spread that you have on a Sunday, you know, it's nice, it's satisfying, it's good. What sort of state would we all be in if the only food we ever ate was Sunday lunch together? We might limp from one Sunday to the next. I don't actually think we'd make it very far, very long, would we? We eat multiple times a day, let alone multiple days a week. Some people might fast at various points, and we can explore that in another sermon series. But you see, my point here is that we are never satisfied in that sense. And we wouldn't ever dream of thinking that coming and having a beautiful banquet, which, thank you for the reviews, yes, I know my preaching, John's preaching, it is like a beautiful banquet, but we'd never think that that would be enough to satisfy and to help us to grow and to be healthy people. We'd take the initiative. We do take the initiative. We make ourselves breakfast. We prep a lunch. We have dinner. We may even snack in between to take the edge off. And I think in our pursuit of Jesus, we need to be exactly the same. We can't just be people who assume that having found something out, something wonderful, something glorious, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, so that we could be saved, that we could be redeemed, that we could be reconciled, that we could be adopted. That's amazing. We can't just assume that because we had a good feed once, that we're never going to be hungry again. Nor can we assume that because we come together on a Sunday for a nice banquet, a Sunday lunch, that that's it for the week. We need to be people who are desperate to know Jesus more, because there is so much more of him to know. Now, I'm just going to plug one, two ways that I'm going to suggest we can do that. I mean, I should, reading your Bible, spending time with other Christians, you know, these things should be obvious. Number one is read some other Christian books. I feel bad being the one saying this because I'm not a tremendous reader. But on our welcome desk over there, Anthea, hello, wave. We have bought for the summer, as we normally do, a shed load of new books. Uh, Biographies, Christian theology, Christian living books, that sort of thing, Bible reading notes. There's absolutely shed loads of new material on there. Every single book is three pounds, which Anthea didn't believe me when I said that because some of them are huge, but every single book is three pounds. You would definitely go out and spend three pounds on a sandwich to feed yourself, like physically, this week, wouldn't you? Go and spend three pounds, six pounds, nine pounds, twelve pounds, whatever it is, to help feed yourself so you can grow and you can know Jesus more over the summer holidays. If you don't enjoy reading, if you aren't able to read, hands up who can't read, yeah, I'm going to keep my hand up, I struggle with it. Find some things to listen to. Almost everybody here spends time commuting or cleaning or whatever it is. And we might have the radio on. 
Find some podcasts, find some sermon series to get into to help you to grow in knowing Jesus more. I, wow, I got too obsessed with that. Next point, very quickly, we should be obsessed with knowing Jesus more and making Jesus more known. If we take Paul as like this person who, who understood the moreness of God and made this amazing claim that we should be content people, when we look at his life, what are the two things that we see him desperate for? For people to grow in their knowledge of Jesus, for people to come to know Jesus at all. I can, I can honestly hand up, say exactly the same as I did with the first one. I have wasted too many years of my Christian life being satisfied with where the kingdom of God is in Ammonford. Satisfied that the church is a certain size. Satisfied that I've got a certain number of people who, who know my faith and who I'm helping to explain Jesus to. I should be desperate for more. I should be asking God for more and more and more because he is able to do more than I can ask or even imagine. If we know Jesus more, we will want to make Jesus more known. How we do that, well, we can explore that over the coming months. But I'm not even specifically talking about discipleship programs, evangelistic street preaching, anything like that. I think one of the big problems when we speak about making Jesus known, witnessing for our faith, is we think big which you might think on a sermon about the bigness and the moreness of God is where I'm going. No, I want us to think small. When we, when we think big, do you know what happens? We never follow through. We get put off. We fall short of even the standards that we set ourselves. But the amazing thing about God being a God of more is that he can take the small things that we do and make a big impact. I'm talking about us taking greater responsibility individually for our own growth and seizing just the tiny, minuscule, um, just uh, apparently invisible opportunities that present themselves in our lives. We should be desperate to make Jesus more known through the words that we speak and the way that we live our lives. When we pull out Random example now, and I've just thought of it on the spot. When we pull out of the church car park this morning now, how are we going to drive home or wherever it is we're going? Are we going to be the kindness, most generous, most gracious people on the roads? Or are we going to be just like everybody else or even worse than other people? Because oh, they haven't had to sat through Sam rambling on at the end of a sermon when he should have finished 10 minutes ago. I've got to get shift in. There's a Sunday lunch on. Don't want to burn it. Like, how many of us would think about making Jesus more known, transferring to how we drive our cars? How we park our cars? How we mourn or don't mourn when other people don't match up to our expectations of how they drive and park their cars? It's a, it's a silly example, but it's a true example. Making Jesus more known in Amford, yes, might include people going out, knocking on doors, preaching in the open air, putting on evangelistic courses, bringing people along to Cafe Church, fine. It might be that. It certainly is not less 
than every single one of us living our lives as if every single breath we take, every step that we make, every decision, every direction is an opportunity somehow to shine the light of Christ into somebody else's life. Make a list of the things that you do. Can you make tea in an evangelistic way? I think you can. And it's not by buying new mugs that have got Bible verses on it. It's by being the one to offer to go make the tea. And when seven people say, yeah, I fancy one now, you don't go, ah, flip, I wish I hadn't asked. You excel in it. Can you, oh, I'm trying to think now of something else random that we do every single day. (laughs) Can you pick the kids up from school in an evangelistic way? Yes, of course you can. It might be wearing a t-shirt with smile, Jesus loves you on you. I don't know. I mean, if that is your idea, then fine, God bless you, I hope it works. But it will also be not just having your head in your phone thinking, I need to get through this, collect my kids, and go away before I make any contact with any other human beings. It's recognizing that you're there with other people who are just as bored, who are anticipating just as much the pain of picking up the kids and the demands that come when you pick the kids up. Can I have this? Can I have that? It's sympathizing with them. It's empathizing with them. It's finding out about how they are doing, why they are the way they are, being the way that you are in light of Christ. When I speak about making Jesus more known, I don't want us to think bigger. I want us to think smaller because God will take those things done a hundred times this week by a hundred people, and I promise you, he will use them so much more than one person standing up and making a big noise. That was a bit of a rant. Okay. I've, I've so gone off my notes, I don't know where I am. Uh, contentment is a dangerous thing if we're content in the wrong place. Okay, I think that's basically it. Make Jesus known. Uh, know Jesus more, make him more known. When we have something so much more worth pursuing in our lives, something that is far much more worth sharing in our lives, we should be obsessed with knowing Jesus more and making him more known. I'm going to pray, and Matt and the band are going to come and lead us. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you reveal yourself. We thank you that this vast ocean is an ocean we can take a step into that this unsearchable God indexes himself so that there are aspects and elements that we can see and relate to and grasp and enjoy. Lord, help us to have a bigger picture of who you are, though. Help us to at least increase the size of the box that we put you in, if not take you out of the box completely. Help us to be a people who expect you to be more than we can ask for or imagine. Lord, grow in us a desire to know Jesus more. Not to just know about Jesus, but to know Jesus more. Not to know him as if we're going to know him through osmosis, being near other people, but Lord, pursuing him, exploring him, exploring your word, wanting to be filled up, Lord, knowing that we can spend the rest of our lives and and never run out. Lord, help us to be a people who are obsessed with desperate for other people to know Jesus too.
Lord, so often we think big. We think slick. We think professional. And Lord, the other 160 hours in our lives disappear out the window. Lord, help us to be a people who are exploring what it might be like to make you more known in the mundane of our lives. To make you more known, Lord God, not in a massive public sector, but with our neighbours, with our families, with our colleagues, with the people who we pass every single day walking in the opposite direction. Lord, you have given us these opportunities. Help us to see how we can make more of them. And Lord, we hand them over to you and we pray that you would be making more of them. You are so worth knowing, Lord. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.